This message by Zach Burnell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Zach serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Philippians 3, this is God's perfect, infallible, authoritative, good word for us this morning. Starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. We'll stop there. Warning signs can be a gift from God. If you pay attention, warning signs, they're all over the place. Uh, caution, wet floor. Uh, road work ahead. Campsite closed due to bear activity. Our cars have maintenance lights, and they know that we don't pay attention to them, so they blink when things get really bad. There are sirens that blast when a tornado is near. Ships have sonar to detect objects that are otherwise unseen. Our bodies even show warning signs for potential health problems. We've been able to predict violent weather and volcanic eruptions, even invading armies, and be able to warn people about these things. And it's just amazing to stop and think, maybe we just take these for granted because they're all over the place, but it's amazing to stop and think how many lives have been saved, how many crises averted, how many injuries averted because of warnings. But on the other hand, history's full of tragic stories because of our failure to heed warnings. For example, the sinking of the Titanic or the explosion of the Challenger, just to name a couple. In our text this morning, in God's kindness, there's a warning for us. There are enemies of our joy. There are enemies of our faith. So watch out. This is a letter about joy. It's about unity in the gospel and persevering faith. And there are enemies to these things. For the Philippians, it was false teachers who despised the sufficient work of Christ for our salvation. For us this morning, it could be anything that does the same, that diminishes the sufficiency of our Savior, Jesus Christ, particularly a warning against self 
righteousness. And so we must be warned and we must be reminded. And it's God's kindness to do so. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, God's people are meant to be people who are always rejoicing in the Lord. And I believe by God's grace, this text is meant to help us do that this morning. Our main point is this. Our joy thrives when our boast is in Christ alone. That's where joy thrives, when our boast is Christ alone. In our text, Paul gives two commands and then tells us what genuine faith looks like. So those will be our three points. Point one, rejoice in the Lord. Verse one, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. The antidote's been commonly told that there was a child with his dad one Sunday morning listening to a sermon. And at one point during the message, he leans over to his dad and he asks, Dad, what does the preacher mean by finally? And his dad kind of looks over at him and mutters, nothing, son. It means absolutely nothing. Well, Paul's finally here is probably not that. It comes in the middle of the whole letter. It's probably not the beginning of a really long conclusion, as much as he's referencing back to an argument he's already made. It's better translated, and so. And so, my brothers. It's linking us back to chapter 2, verse 18, where he's called these Philippians already to rejoice with him in the sacrifice of faith. Last week, we looked at two faithful men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who who were examples of this, who lived worthy of the gospel, who had the mind of Christ, who joyfully sacrificed for the Lord. They're examples of this earlier command to rejoice in the sacrifice of faith. And so now, and so now in our text, you all rejoice in the Lord. My brothers, just as Epaphroditus was his brother and was dear to Paul, so too you Philippians are dear to me, is what Paul is saying. And what does he want for those who are most dear to him? That they would rejoice in the Lord. He wants to ground their joy in the Lord. And he says, to write these same things to you is no trouble for me. It's no trouble, and it's safe for you. I'm a forgetful person. Sarah would say that that's an understatement, my wife. I need to be told, sadly, uh, things many times. And so because of that, part of that, over the years, Sarah has created this game she plays where she'll tell me a story that she knows I've heard more than once before, and she'll just see how long it takes for me to realize she's told me this before. Now, she does a great job. She tells it as if she's never told me this story before. And to my shame, most of the time, she'll get through the whole thing, and I'll say, that's a great story. Why have you never told me before? Every now and again, I'll catch her, and my response will be, "Uh, you've already told me this. (laughs) You got to love my wife who lives with someone like me. But in some ways, at least spiritually, the Bible says we're all like this. Hebrews tells us to exhort one another every single day so that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We all forget. 
I once heard a pastor say that I always live five minutes at a time. Get up in the morning, have a great devotion, filled with faith in the Lord and joy in who He is, and then I walk outside and begin my day, and things don't go well, and I lose my joy. For Paul to remind these Philippians of these same things, it's just, it's evidence of his love for them. That's why he doesn't hesitate, and his reminder is safe. Another translation reads, it's a safeguard. Why is it safe for Paul to remind these Philippians to rejoice in the Lord? Well, Matthew Henry says, the joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies. It arms us and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. It guards us from temptation and sin. It's safe because it protects us. Joy in the Lord is a major theme of this letter, this epistle of joy. And this command is to make the Lord our ground and our measure and our reason for joy. Remember, Paul's in prison. And yet joy in the Lord, it transcends all sorrows that a Roman prison might bring. Do you find that hard to believe? Because it was true for Paul. It really was. And by the grace of God, it can be true for followers of Christ. The fact that it's no trouble for Paul to remind them of these things, it doesn't mean he passes over what's a very real trouble for these believers, what they might be facing. He just means he doesn't hesitate because even in your trouble, there are always reasons for joy. It's not simply a command to obey. It's a reality to be embraced. There are reasons from, for joy, even from prison, even amid persecution, even amid suffering. God is always working, always. And He's accomplishing His perfect purposes. That's why our joy's got to be rooted in Him. Our joy must be rooted in the Lord, our union with Christ, which never changes. So how's your joy? How's your fight for joy? It's a fight, isn't it? One encouragement from this text is that this is a command to be obeyed as a people. It's in the plural. This joy given by God is shared in the church. We're called to rejoice together. And our joy is what holds our church together. Our fight for joy together. This has everything to do with unity in the gospel. One commentator said, rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord is the church's foundation for stability. It's what we need. So how's your fight for joy? You know, even just being here this morning, even just being with the people of God, singing His praises, praying for one another, sitting underneath God's Word. These are God-given means in our fight for joy. He's gracious to give them. And when we fight for joy, it's a safeguard for all of life, no matter what ills we may face. This command to rejoice, rejoice in the Lord, it's a reminder of our grounds for joy. Our joy is not grounded in ourselves. Isn't that good news? Oh, thank you, Lord, for that. 
doesn't matter how we feel in a sense. Paul's not coming and saying, muster up happiness. He's calling us to remember whose we are. Our joy is grounded in our Savior and all that he's accomplished. But we need to be reminded, I tend to forget. I think you do too. We all tend to forget. Paul's a good friend. He's a good pastor. He doesn't hesitate. He reminds them again and again. I think there is something also here for us to learn as a church. Let's never tire of reminding one another of the glories of Christ. May the gospel never grow dull to us. Let's continue to remind one another of these incredible truths of what Christ has done for us. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said so many problems in our life come from forgetting the gospel. And he was primarily talking about Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there never will be. We need to be reminded of these things. So let's encourage one another every day. Because if we don't hear that message, if we don't hear that truth and cling to that truth of Christ's sufficiency for us, there are other messages out there that will influence us. And that's what Paul turns to next when he warns these Philippians in point two, watch out for dangers. Verse two, he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Immediately after this call to rejoice, there's a call to watch out. You know, sometimes in order for us to enjoy something, it includes looking out for what robs us of that joy. So if you want to enjoy a nice, relaxing evening together with friends or your spouse, you have to avoid miscommunicating about the plan. If you want to enjoy a good meal to its fullest, you have to avoid snacking right beforehand. We can ruin meals that way. If you want to enjoy the gift of productivity in your life, you have to avoid laziness and unnecessary distractions. Well, if you're going to rejoice in the Lord, you must watch out for anything that would take your attention away from Christ's perfect sufficiency for you. Paul's deeply concerned about this false teaching that either has already come or is about to come into this church that would harm this church. And so he uses this abrupt and punctuated language just to stress the need. This is important. Wake up. You might not see it. He says, look out three times. It's serious. You need to be on high alert. High alert against what? Against whom? Who, who are these dogs? These evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh. Well, they are the Judaizers. It was a group of Jews who claimed to follow Christ, but who taught that Gentile believers, like the Philippians, Gentile believers, in order for their salvation to be legitimate, they first had to become like Jews. Acts 15 lays it out pretty clearly. Verse 1 says, Some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Later in verse 5, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up 
and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, these Gentile believers, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. They were adding to the gospel. They were adding, faith alone in Christ alone was not enough. They taught you must also assimilate to Jewish practice and tradition, adding works. And so Paul, knowing the dangers, this is dangerous. He's a good pastor. He uses this cutting language because the gospel's at stake. They're twisting it. They are despising the sufficient work of Christ. And in doing so, you know what they're doing? They are harming the faith and the joy and the confidence of these Philippian believers. So Paul says, look out. You know, the word implies something hazardous is coming. It's serious. I know a family who were all gathered, a family gathering, and all the kids were outside running around playing uh, hide-and-seek. And at one point during the night, one of the adults needed to run out for something. And so he and his son go outside, and they got in his truck, and he started it up. And right before he was about to reverse out of the driveway, his son said, wait, stop. And the dad looked to his son and asked, what's the deal? Well, one of the cousins had been hiding behind the tires of the truck. And if he had moved the vehicle, it would have been devastating. So by the grace of God, everyone was fine. And no one was injured. And it was ultimately God's mercy. But this cousin was watching out. And I share that illustration just to say, this is meant to be serious. This is not a game. Your faith is in danger. One question I have is, is do, we, do we value faith like this? Is faith precious to us? Oh, is faith a treasure to us? A gift from God that we want to fight for and watch out for anything that might harm it. What these people were teaching was abhorrent to Paul. It was not the gospel. It was dangerous. And so he calls them dogs. Now, they didn't think then of dogs like we think of today. Dogs weren't their pets. One commentator described them as the most despicable, insolent, and miserable of creatures. Now, some of you might think of dogs today like that, or cats. <laughs> but historically, Jews, dogs were gross creatures. They ate anything. They were considered unclean. And so historically, Jews would insult non-Jews by calling them dogs, unclean, outside of the covenant community. Enemies of Israel were insulted by calling them dogs. The Judaizers even used it against these Gentile believers. And so Paul faithful, fighting pastor, he turns this word right back on him. He loves these Philippians. The Philippians are not the dogs. They aren't on the outside. They are not unclean. Those who trust in their own works are the dogs. They are the ones who are on the outside, unclean. 
The gospel calls us to abandon any identity outside of Christ and to cling to him alone. That's what makes us part of the people of God, Jew or Gentile. He calls them evildoers, which is another play on words because they called themselves workers of righteousness. Paul says, you're workers all right, but of evil. Because what you're teaching is at enmity to Christ. It's opposed to the gospel. He calls them mutilators of the flesh. You know, the, the main teaching these Judaizers were promoting was that these Gentile Christians need to be circumcised. That they need to embrace this, this physical sign of the old covenant that God gave to Abraham to mark the people of God. But they had missed, what they had missed was that in Christ, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, Galatians 6 says. The mark now of the people of God is not a physical sign. It's an internal reality, new creation. What Bill was praying for this morning in these kids, a new heart given. It's what all the way back in Deuteronomy 10 talks about circumcision of our hearts, the indwelling of the Spirit, faith in the sufficient and the perfect and the final work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so all you guys, you're just mutilators of the flesh, which is the same word that was used to describe the uh, pagan cult worship practice of cutting yourself while worshiping, what the prophets of Baal did when Elijah was challenging them. So what's the application here? Well, for some of us, the question is, where are we tempted to look outside of Christ for acceptance to God? Now, all of us struggle with that to a degree, trying to earn something in our standing before the Lord, whether that's a track record of performance or whether we've just avoided a certain sin for such a long amount of time, doing enough good deeds. We want to watch out for that in our lives. We want to trust in Christ's perfect sufficiency. But maybe a more pertinent question, and what this category really gets us to, is where are we tempted to be self-righteous? Where do we regard others as inferior? Because they don't do what we do, or look like what we look like, or sound like what we sound like. Where do we think others are inferior? Because they don't follow the rules that we think are right outside of Scripture. They don't do things the way we think they ought to be done. we we got to be so careful not to add to the gospel. You know what these Judaizers missed most? They missed how spiritually bankrupt they actually were. How great their need actually was. It is... They needed something so much greater than just looking like and acting like a Jew. They needed their sin forgiven. They needed life in the Spirit. They needed something that the flesh could never do. Life in His name. What Jesus purchased for us in His life and death and resurrection. 
Self-attained righteousness robs us of joy. Requiring what God does not robs us of joy. And something else here. If If we're commanded to look out three times, I do think there's something in here to tell us that we're vulnerable. It's good to know that. We are influenceable. Have you paid attention to that lately? We're we're probably all more influenceable than we think. So we want to watch out. We want to guard our faith. See God's mercy here to warn us. What we need is a fresh reminder of the sufficient and completed and perfect work of our Savior. You know, the hymn of Christ in chapter 2 It drives this book. It's the root of our joy. It's the root of our unity. Christ crucified for sinners. Our righteousness in Him alone. So look out for anything that would take your attention off of Him. In verse 3, Paul turns their attention to remind them who they are. And that's the third point. Point three, know who you are in Christ and boast in Him alone. Verse 3 says, For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. This is the mark of true believers. This is where Paul comes alongside these Philippians and reminds them of their status before Christ. Maybe they were tempted to think, we, we really are outsiders. We, we really are second-rate, second-class Christians. And so Paul uses another, uh, some more ironic language. He says, we are the circumcision. That's what the Judaizers called themselves. Paul says, we are the circumcision. Yeah, that's, yes, me and you, you Gentile believers, you are the circumcision. Meaning, you are the true people of God. You are marked and belong to Him. He's encouraging them, building their faith pointing them to what matters most. And the point of all of it, this is God's doing. This is what God has done, not your earning. You've been made new in Christ. I think we could just pause and celebrate something here as a church because we too are called into covenant relationship with the Lord. I mean, we are, you and me, we, through faith in Christ, we are the people of God. We belong to Him. Those promises we've been reading as we're walking through Genesis, those promises that God made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, those are ours in Christ. He is our God, and we are His people. How incredible is that? These Philippians needed to hear it. We belong to Him. We are the people of God. I think we need to hear it too. We've been bought by Him, redeemed by Him and are His. Well, why would that matter so much? Well, it's to combat this false teaching, to stand firm in Christ, but it's also a way to fight for joy in Him. Look at what He's done. Look at what the Lord has done. First, we worship by the Spirit of God. We've been indwelt by the Spirit. We no longer come to Him through animal sacrifice and high priest. We come to Him in Christ. The Spirit is at work in us. He has freed us from sin. We no longer have to obey sin. He has freed us out of slavery. He empowers us to live lives that please Him. It's the miracle of the gospel. 
Jesus has rescued us from sin and sent the Spirit into our hearts that we might know we belong to Him, that we really are children of God, and so we worship Him. We worship in spirit and in truth because we know Him, and He knows us, and miracles happen. And, and one point here, if, if you have any desire in your heart to obey, if you have any desire in your heart to really worship God and to know Him, that is His mercy. That's a miracle that has taken place and something to be encouraged by. Secondly, we glory or we boast in Christ Jesus. This is where boasting happens. Not in ourselves, not in our flesh, not in our works, not in what we do or what we bring to the table, our efforts, but in Christ alone. God has purposed wisely that our salvation would be by grace alone, not a result of works so that no one may boast, Ephesians 2 says. This is why Paul could say, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world's been crucified to me and I to the world. Kent Hughes, a commentator, says, we boast because it is not our joy in Christ that saves us, it is Christ. We boast because it is not even our faith that saves us, it is Christ. Our boast is in Christ alone, and when it is, oh, our joy thrives. And thirdly, we put no confidence in the flesh. Calvin says that the flesh is everything that's outside of Christ. It's what the Judaizers are promoting. But to boast in Jesus necessarily means no confidence in the flesh. Because Romans 3 says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. In verses 4 to 6, Paul lays out what confidence in the flesh could look like. Verse 4 He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. It's like he turns to address the Judaizers, and he says, okay, this is the game you want to play, confidence in the flesh. Let me talk to you about confidence in the flesh. That's my game. And he goes down the list. He lists these seven advantages, just fullness of advantage. This was Paul's life. This is what he came out of. Verse 5, he was circumcised on the eighth day. Just means he was a true Jew. He did it right. Born and raised, a Jew. Circumcised on the day the law required. He says he was of the people of Israel. He, He belonged to the people of God. He was a true Israelite. He was not grafted in. He was not a foreigner. He was God's people. He says he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was was a special, it was a tribe that had a special place in Israel's history. Paul was a member of one of the best tribes and was able to trace it. It's probably why he was named Saul. Saul, the first king, came out of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. 
from a family that prized their Jewish heritage. They were serious about it. He grew up in this. In regards to the law, he says, a Pharisee. A Pharisee was one who paid rigorous attention to the law, whose whole life was governed by the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. That's how extreme he was about Judaism. He was willing to risk his life or even take the lives of of others for the sake of its purity. That's his zeal for what he thought was the the way of God. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's not just saying his conscience was clear. He's saying anyone who took an objective evaluation and observation of me would see I followed the law. Blameless. I did it right. Even the Judaizers didn't have the advantages and the the list like that. So what's he doing? Well, he's not saying, yeah, you can if you try hard enough. Try hard enough, you can be like me and you can be righteous if you adhere to the law well enough. His point is this, I did it. I did it. If anyone could be confident in the flesh, it's me. And guess what? It all adds up to nothing. Next week, we're going to be in these verses. And I'm very excited about these verses because that's where he's building. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You know, he, he didn't solely hope in Christ alone because he had nothing in himself, fleshly speaking, to stand on. It wasn't just, well, I'm not very good. Well, I'll just trust in Christ. He had every reason to hope in himself in a fleshly way. But when it comes to righteousness before a holy God, it was all nothing. Because hope in the flesh is no hope at all. Our righteousness Our salvation, our hope is and must only be in Christ alone. So what's the Lord wanting to do in us? You know, this letter, it's meant to fight division. Here's a way we can be divisive. Confidence in the flesh. Self-righteous, adding to the gospel. As soon as we do that, we lose our grounds for unity as a church. What unifies us as a church is not a list of achievements, not even our pursuit of righteousness as a wonderful thing that the pursuit of righteousness is. What unifies our church is our hope and our need for Christ. So let's be aware of any self-righteous tendencies in our hearts, and let's marvel at the grace of God to us in Christ Because joy only thrives when our boast is in Him alone. Paul Tripp in his devotional, New Morning Mercies, he says this along the lines of self-confidence and independence, that kind of thing. He says, life is only ever found when we put ourselves in the hands of our Creator and cast ourselves on His amazing grace. An honest look at how you are put together by the Creator 
and that what sin did to you destroys any confidence you have in your ability to make it on your own and drives you to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our foundation, our foundation for joy, our foundation for unity, our foundation for peace, for living worthy of the gospel is not how well we do it on our own means. Our grounds for joy in the gospel and living worthy of the gospel is living in light of the gospel, that we have all we need in Christ. We need to be reminded of this. We're all tempted to forget. Walter Hansen, a commentator, says, no matter how precious the social privileges and how perfect the moral accomplishments may be, all that ultimately eternally matters for a follower of Christ is Christ. May he be our boast alone. I pray everyone in this room would know the joy it is to trust in the sufficiency of the completed work of our Savior. Because our joy will thrive when our boast is in him alone. Let's pray. Father, I pray that by your Spirit, that would be true of us. I pray you'd help us to boast in Christ alone. To recognize our need because of our sin. To recognize how our own works could never make us right before you, and to recognize this incredible gift of salvation that you offer. Lord, guard us, guard us from self-righteousness. Guard us against legalism. And help us to find our hope solely in you. I pray it would affect our church. I pray it would cause us greater and greater unity together as we rejoice together in the perfect work of our Savior. Remind us, Lord, prone to wonder. Oh, Lord, I feel it. So remind us and help us to live in the good of the best news in the universe, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Zach Farnell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.